Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the 22nd episode of the RIT Podcast. The House returned this week, re-electing Anthony Rota as the Speaker, a job he first got back in 2019. The throne speech on Tuesday looks like it will be getting the support of the Bloc Québécois, so the government will not fall. Not that anyone thought that was likely, but it was interesting to see the NDP criticizing the throne speech as much as it did, perhaps as a reaction to some of the discussion about potential liberal NDP cooperation. For now at least, it looks like business as usual in Ottawa. So the last few episodes I've been talking about the Quebec by-election that is to be held in Marie-Victorin early next year. Uh, there was some speculation that Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, the leader of the Parti Québécois, would run in order to get a seat. Well, he won't. Instead, the PQ has nominated Pierre Nantel to run for the party. That might be a familiar name for many of you, as Nantel was first elected as a New Democrat in the 2011 federal election in the riding of Longueuil Pierre Boucher. He was re-elected in the new riding of Longueuil Saint-Hubert in 2015, one of the few NDP MPs in Quebec to avoid defeat that year. But in 2019, he was ejected from the NDP caucus and instead ran for the federal Greens. He did help them in the riding, boosting the party's support from 2.5% to 11%, but he's well back in third of the bloc, which took the seat back. Now, not running is probably the smart move for Saint-Pierre Plamondon. Uh, Apparently, a poll commissioned by the PQ didn't give him great odds of winning, and he would have taken a real hit politically if Saint-Pierre Plamondon had run and lost. Nantel, though, he gives the PQ a chance to win, and if he loses, it won't be as embarrassing for the PQ. So it is a good solution for the Parti Québécois. Had they put up a no-name candidate, that would have looked even worse for Saint-Pierre Plamondon. And to update you on some of the leadership news I talked about last week, well, Aaron O'Toole is still leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and so far, doesn't seem like anyone has been following Senator Denise Batters out the caucus door. There was a story that was reported by Global showing that the party had spent a million dollars on that studio in the Weston Hotel here in Ottawa. Not clear what the purpose of that leak was, uh, if it was something that was meant to undermine Aaron O'Toole or not, but so far we are seeing some unity within the Conservative Party, at least publicly. For Jason Kenney in Alberta, his party's AGM over the weekend was also pretty uneventful, though it did come out that former Wild Rose leader Daniel Smith would be interested in running to lead the UCP if Kenney steps aside. So we now have two former Wild Rosers who have thrown their hat in the hypothetical ring, Brian Jean being the other. The saga will continue to play out for at least a few more months, when Kenny will have to face a leadership review. In Yukon, Sandy Silver's minority liberal government survived a vote of non-confidence that was put forward by the opposition Yukon party. The liberals have a confidence and supply agreement with the New Democrats who voted with the liberals to defeat the non-confidence motion. And finally, the Greens have an interim leader. Amita Kuttner has been appointed to the job as the party searches for a permanent leader. Kuttner was a contestant in the 2020 leadership race, finishing sixth with 7% of the vote. According to the Greens, at just under 31 years old, Kuttner is the youngest, the first trans person, and the first person of East Asian descent to lead a national political party. The leadership contest to replace Annamie Paul will now need to be called within the next six months. Polls of the week now. Let's get to two different polls. One is a provincial survey, one is a federal survey. Uh, The provincial survey is by Leger. It was done for Post Media. Now, this survey was done between November 12th and November 14th, surveying 1,001 people in Ontario online. So Ontario is heading into an election in June, and really everything that's happening at Queen's Park these days does seem to be very much axed towards that uh, looming provincial election. 
The results of this Leger poll suggest that it's still a pretty close race, but the Conservatives are in the lead. They have 34% support among decided voters, followed by the Liberals at 31%, the New Democrats at 26%, the Green Party at 6 and the New Blue Party at 2%. New Blue is a party that was launched by Jim Carahalios. He was a contestant for the federal Conservative leadership back in 2020. He was disqualified from that race. His wife is Belinda Carahalios. She is an MPP in the legislature. She was booted from the PC caucus after she voted against their emergency measures uh, bill that uh, the Ford government had brought in. And she is sitting as a MPP for the New Blue Party. Seems to be going after more of that PPC-style vote, though increasingly there is uh, some competition for it. But to get back to the big parties, it's a three-point lead for the PCs over the Liberals. And as I've mentioned before, I really do have a lot of doubts when it comes to support for the Ontario Liberal Party, because for a lot of voters in Ontario, the Liberals are the federal Liberals, or it's the party they've always voted for. It's not necessarily the Stephen Del Duca Liberals. And I think this is what is really key here, because Del Duca is still not very well known. The Leger survey found that only 62% of Ontarians had enough of an opinion about Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, to say whether their views were favorable or unfavorable. And even that seems kind of high, because if you look at the amount of people who said they had somewhat favorable or somewhat unfavorable views, if you take them out of the equation, you're only talking about 22% of Ontarians who had a firm opinion about the liberal leader. And of those people... They didn't like him very much. So I do have some doubts about how much of the Ontario vote is going to hold up in an election campaign. Now, where would that vote go? I mean, you would think that the NDP would be the one to benefit. But Andrew Horvath, the NDP leader, is also not that well liked. Her favorable rating was 39% to 41% unfavorable. Uh, so she's not exactly you know, galvanizing support behind her. And if you look at the amount of people who have a very unfavorable or very favorable opinion of her, it's 10% very favorable to 23% very unfavorable. That's better than Doug Ford. You have 33% who have a very unfavorable view of him and 54% overall who have an unfavorable view. Uh, the fact that Ford has 40% of Ontarians who have a favorable view, whether it's very or somewhat, is a, a good number for him because it puts him even with Horvath. And, you know, that's an election winning number if he can hold all of that vote, which is a big question. But I think that we're going to have to wait and see until we get closer to the Ontario election before we really have a good idea of where the Liberals stand. Because I don't really have a huge amount of doubt that the Ontario PCs might be in the mid-30s. But the question is, where is support for the Ontario Liberals and the Ontario NDP? I'm not sure if we're really getting a good idea of where that stands right now. Uh, the Leger poll did ask a couple questions that was based on recent policy decisions by the Ontario PCs, one being the increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour as of January 1st. 35% of people said that was about right. Only 10% said it was too much. 48% said it was too little. You do see that overall, you don't have people who think it was a wrong decision. You don't have very many of those, but you do have a lot of people who think it still is not what needs to be done. And those were primarily Liberal, NDP, uh, voters. So if the PCs were hoping to get some support from the Liberals or the NDP with this kind of move, it doesn't seem like it's likely to, to do uh, that. Though you did have 28-24% of Liberal NDP voters who said that this move to $15 an hour was about right. So maybe there is some, some advantage there for the PCs. But this does not seem to be a decision that's going to cause them any problems. Uh, it just might not be one that is going to win them the election. There's also a question about uh, extending 
vaccine passport rules for children between the ages of 5 and 11, you actually do see that a lot of people would support this move. 64% would like to see that the vaccine mandates to go into restaurants or that kind of thing be extended to children, only 26% opposed. Uh, It doesn't seem like the government's going to go in that direction, even though among PC voters, 63% would support such a move and 31% would oppose it. That is higher, the opposition, than the other parties, supporters for the Liberals, the NDP and the Greens. Uh, But you can still see that for a majority of PC voters, extending the passport rules to children would actually be popular. Now, the other poll I wanted to highlight is a federal survey. This was done by Ipsos for Global News. This was in the field between November 12th and November 15th, and 1,001 Canadians were surveyed about this. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in the House of Commons this week about inflation and how much your breakfast is going to cost. But uh, this survey by Ipsos, you do see that a lot of people are worried about that. 78% say they are concerned that inflation will make everyday things less affordable. Only 22% were not concerned. So this is an issue that people are concerned about. I'm not sure if this survey really is indicating whether it's something that's a top of mind issue. But if you ask people, are you afraid that prices are going to increase and it's going to be a problem for you? Not surprisingly, a large proportion of people say that, yes, that is something that they're worried about. And interestingly, you don't actually see that much of a difference um, among people of different income brackets. The richest Canadians, those with a household income of $100,000 or more, 75% say they are worried that inflation will increase costs for them. 76% of the poorest Canadians, those who make less than 40000 are also concerned. So you're seeing the same amount. It's actually those in the middle bracket, those between forty and 100000 household income, that are the most concerned about inflation making things too unaffordable. It seems That seems counterintuitive. You would think that the richer you are, the less likely you're going to be worried about this, and the poorer you are, the more likely you will be worried about it. Um, but it doesn't seem to be linked to that very much. Now, when Ipsos asked if inflation is something that is making people concerned that they might not have enough money to feed their family, there you see where household income does have a role. 31% of people who have a household income of 100000 or more agree that they're worried they might not have enough to feed their family. But it's 58% among those with uh, under 40000 where you can imagine that regardless of inflation, that must always be a top of mind concern. So it's not surprising that this is an issue that uh, the opposition conservatives are talking a lot about. This is something that a lot of people are worried about. Uh, we'll have to see some more polling data about inflation itself to know if this is something that is hurting the government or people are expecting that the federal government should uh, be the one responsible for reducing inflation or if they're getting blamed for it. But there is certainly the potential there that this could be an issue for the government the longer this goes on. All right, questions and answers. Uh, I got this one from Christopher J on Twitter. All of these questions were on Twitter. He asks, if the Liberals somehow got their own 1993 PC result, which two seats would you think they would hold on to? So if you know anything about Canadian politics, you probably are aware of what happened in 1993, where uh, Brian Mulroney's PCs had a majority government. They won it in 1984, a huge landslide. They won 169 seats in 1988. And then in 1993, Mulroney was replaced by Kim Campbell, party was really struggling and in the end only got two seats. It's the worst defeat in Canadian history. And I think it ranks up there in terms of our our system of government, our system of elections. This is the worst kind of result that we've seen for any party. The two seats that the PCs were able to hold on to was Sherbrooke, which was Jean Charest's riding, and St. John, which was represented by Elsie Wayne. She won that riding for the PCs. Both of them actually, though, were not squeakers. 
Uh, LZ Wayne won by about 10 points. Jean Charest still got over 50% of the vote. So there was a particular reason these two seats stuck with the PCs, but it was a catastrophic result for the progressive conservatives. So the question, if this happened to the liberals, what would be the two seats that they might be able to hold on to? Well, if we just look at the numbers from the 2021 election, the two ridings that were won by the Liberals by the largest margins were Saint-Léonard-Saint-Michel, which is on the island of Montreal. They won that by 59 points. And the other riding was Akidzi bathurst which is in northern New Brunswick. They won by 51 points. Now, Saint-Léonard-Saint-Michel, that would be certainly one of the ridings I would think could be one of the two that would remain with the party. Akidzi bathurst I'm not sure about that because it was not that long ago uh, represented by the NDP. Yvon Gaudin, he was the one who held that riding for quite a while. So it's not as much, I would say, a liberal riding as, you know, it could be more of a circumstantial liberal riding. So if I had to look and find another one to add to the list, I'd probably go to Ottawa Vanier. Uh, Now, Ottawa Vanier wasn't won by as big of a margin uh, this time, but it is a riding that has been with the liberals for pretty much a century. So if there is going to be one seat that remains for the liberals, you'd probably identify it as Ottawa Vanier. Uh, and St. Leonard, St. Michel, that could be the other one. So just for fun, what about the other parties? What if the Conservatives or the Bloc or the NDP were reduced to two seats? Well, if we just look at which ridings were the ones they won by the largest margins, not surprisingly for the Conservatives, they're two Western ridings, Surus Moose Mountain in Saskatchewan, they won that by 67 points, and Battle River Crowfoot in Alberta, they won that by 62 points. So those would be the two safest ridings for the Conservatives. For the Bloc, there are two ridings that they won by 38 percentage points. One was avignon lamitis matin Matsipidia, which is in eastern Quebec. This is also a riding where the Parti Québécois is very popular, so it would not be surprising if it was one of the two to remain to the Bloc. The other one is uh, Bécancourt-Nicolas-Sorel. This is uh, represented by Louis Plamondon, who was the dean in the House. He's been an MP now since 1984. Uh, almost as long as I've been alive. He was one of the ones that was elected in the 2011 collapse, um, and he has held that riding for so long, and he won it by 38 points as well. Uh, if the block was going to be reduced to two seats, you you have to give Plamondon the, the edge. And then finally for the New Democrats, uh, the, the two seats that they won by the largest margins were Vancouver East, 37 points. Not much of a shock there, but the other one, Edmonton Strathcona. They won that by 35 points. So that is an interesting one. You wouldn't think that if the NDP was reduced to two seats, one of them would be in Alberta. But there you go. Connor asked, the federal Greens have picked a new interim leader, but where do they go from here? Do they have prospects for a leader? How do they pick up any votes in the next five to ten years? So the Greens have had a very, very, very bad campaign. And uh, a lot of that is due to what happened with the party. Um, Annemie Paul wasn't really taking off in the polls before the election, but it would have been hard for her to do that anyway. Uh, you know, the Green Party leader is not exactly someone who leads the news every night. But the infighting in the party also really, really made it difficult for them to get anywhere off the map. I don't think we can assume that things will continue to be rough for the Green Party because this election was bad for them. One election is not a sign of things to come. But I do think that it does highlight some problems for the Greens. It doesn't take much to knock people off of the Greens because they're not really a party that a lot of people will identify with, that it is the party that they would default to supporting. So the Greens do have to be on their game in order to maintain at least their base level of support. But the question I think for the Greens is where do they fit in now? Now, people who support the Green Party would probably say that the New Democrats and the Liberals don't have ambitious enough climate plans. But for a lot of voters, if the Liberals and the NDP are running decent campaigns, they'll be seen as credible enough on the environment. 
So the Greens would have to take advantage of a weakness in the Liberals or the New Democrats, particularly the New Democrats, in order to make some gains. So if the NDP or the Liberals are running decent campaigns, if they have leaders who are still relatively popular, I think that is hard for the Greens to make a breakthrough because there needs to be a particular reason for people to go to the Green Party and get them off of the Liberals or the NDP. This almost happened in 2019 because the New Democrats seemed to be pretty weak. Jagmeet Singh was not doing pretty well as a leader. And so there was that opportunity for the Greens to supplant the New Democrats as that option for people on that side of the spectrum. But I think for the Greens, they have to hope that either support for the Liberals or the New Democrats collapse, um, or they do get a new leader who is very dynamic and is able to really get people enthusiastic about voting for a party that they might not have ever really considered voting for seriously, and that they don't consider a contender for government. That's also a huge stumbling block. If you're a liberal voter, you're voting for a party that has a good shot of forming government. If you're an NDP voter, you know, you've always voted for the NDP, maybe. You think they have a, a chance to have a big role in parliament in a minority government. But to go to the Greens, you need to really believe and really be optimistic that your vote's going to make a difference. So I, I think those are the challenges for the Green Party. I don't think that they're insurmountable, but certainly it is going to be a bit of a challenge for them if the other parties are not making it easier for them. Luke Callan asks, now that we've had a few post-election federal polls, what are your main takeaways about federal trends right now? Well, we haven't had a ton of polls, and they haven't really shown much changes since the last election. You know, the Liberals are anywhere from 31 to 35 percent. Uh, the Conservatives are anywhere from 30, 26 in the latest Leger. Uh, the NDP is really where they were at the end of the campaign. So if you're looking at the numbers, you're seeing that the Liberals are holding pretty much their vote from the election. The Conservatives have dropped, it seems, in most polls, but the polls did underestimate Conservative support, so maybe you need to give them an extra point or two. And the NDP, you know, seems to be more or less where they were, and they didn't meet their polls in the last election campaign. So for now, I'd say the trends are showing stability, that people are primarily sticking with the party that they uh, voted for in the last election, so it suggests they're not really regretting that choice. The Conservatives might be losing a little bit of steam, which is not too much of a surprise after an election defeat, and... The People's Party actually is maintaining its support, which is a bit of a surprise. They're at 5-6% in these surveys. So in a way, this does look a lot like what happened after 2019, where the polls showed more or less the same numbers for the few months after that election campaign before the pandemic really changed everything. So um, I think that the trends for now suggest that people satisfied with who they voted for wouldn't really change their minds. And um, we'll see if that holds up and if it does for how long. And here's a question from... Uh, at Andrew F. Owens, is there polling available on Anglophone Canadians in Quebec elections? Is it 90-10 for Quebec Liberals? It once used to be that lopsided, but it isn't as lopsided anymore. If we look at the last Leger poll that was done in Quebec, this was done at the end of September, you do see that the Liberals do lead and they do dominate among Anglophones, but their support is not nearly as high as it once was. They're at 55% support among non-Francophones, so this would include so-called allophones and Anglophones. Behind the Liberals among Anglophone voters in this survey was the CAQ, François Legault's party, at 19%, and third place was actually the Conservatives. The Quebec Conservatives had 10%. After that, it was 8% for Quebec Solidaire and 3% for the Parti Québécois. Uh, just to contrast that, the CAQ has about as big of a lead among Francophones as the Liberals do among Anglophones, which is 
actually really kind of incredible now that I'm saying it because you usually don't see that. But in this survey, the CAQ was at 54% support among Francophones. In second place was the Parti Québécois at just 13%. Quebec Solidaire was at 12%, and the Liberals were in fourth at 10%. So um, the Liberals still have a big chunk of the vote among Anglophone Quebecers, and it's what ensures that, at the very least, official opposition status. But the CAQ would certainly like to make inroads there, I'm not sure if it's going to be happening anytime soon. So back this week is the Every Election Project, my look at the history of every election that's taken place in Canada. Today we're going back to the year 2000, November 27th, 21 years ago this weekend. It was the last federal election won by Jean Chrétien and the last federal election in which the right was divided. By 2000, Chrétien's Liberals had been in office for seven years. After narrowly winning a majority government in 1997, the Liberals weren't expected to go back to the polls until 2001, and weren't required to call an election until 2002. But not all majority governments run out their full terms, particularly when the government sees weakness on the opposition benches. The opposition by now was no longer Preston Manning's Reform Party, but its successor, the Canadian Alliance, now under the leadership of Stockwell Day, who defeated Manning in a leadership race for the new party. Chrétien saw vulnerabilities in Stockwell Day's leadership. The economy was going well, the budget was balanced, the debt was being paid off, and support for Quebec independence was low, as the government poured money into the province through the federal sponsorship program. The Liberals spied an opportunity to increase their majority, prevent the alliance from making any inroads, and deal the Bloc Québécois a defeat. So, off to the polls the country went. The Liberals went hard after Stockwell Day and the alliance on Day's social conservative views and the party's purported support for two-tiered health care, with the NDP under Alexa McDonough also hitting hard on health care and Joe Clark's progressive conservatives trying to peel away voters from the alliance too, the Liberals had a pretty easy go of it, and Day's campaign stumbled from one gaffe or bad media story to another. Such as when he held up a small sign during the leaders' debate. Uh, position is on healthcare. I don't mind sharing you with you my briefing notes, Mr. Kretschia. No two-tiered healthcare. Can you read that, sir? Joe Clark. <laughs> uh, Mr. Day is a past master at reducing uh, complex arguments to a billboard. Um, you know, I more and, no more and more. I think he must be running for. Uh, for office as some kind of uh, game show host, uh, uh, not as uh, not as the prime minister of the of the country. Can the whole healthcare system be? Safe? When the results were compiled, the Liberals had won 41 percent of the vote and 172 seats, an increase of two points and 17 seats from the 1997 election. The Liberals won 100 of 103 seats in Ontario with over 51 percent of the vote and took 44 percent of the vote in Quebec, along with making a gain of 10 seats. The Canadian Alliance captured 25.5% of the vote nationwide and 66 seats. That represented a big gain of six points over the Reform Party's performance in 1997, but only six extra seats. The party was shut out of Atlantic Canada and Quebec and won just two seats in Ontario, dominating only British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. The bloc in its second election, with Gilles Duceppe as leader, won 40% of the vote in Quebec, but just 38 seats, which would stand as its worst seat result until the 2011 collapse. The NDP took 8.5% of the vote and 13 seats, a big drop from its 1997 result, while the PCs held on to recognize party status with 12 seats and 12% of ballots cast. Day's leadership wouldn't last much longer, as the alliance was riven with internal divisions that culminated in Day launching a leadership contest that he would lose to Stephen Harper. Alexa McDonough and Joe Clark would also step aside before the next election and would be replaced by Jack Layton for the NDP and Peter McKay for the Progressive Conservatives. 
For the Liberals, though, the results kicked off speculation that the party was unbeatable, that the split on the right would guarantee Liberal wins for the foreseeable future. But it was not to be. The party would split itself between Cretchen and Martin Camps until Cretchen resigned in 2003, Harper and McKay would unite the right, and the sponsorship scandal would ruin Liberal fortunes in Quebec and elsewhere for a decade. But at the end of the year 2000, all looked to be on track for a 21st century that would be a Liberal century. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. By the way, Wednesday's edition of the Weekly Writ coming up will be available to everyone. So be sure to check it out in your inbox if you're a paid or free subscriber. And if you aren't, you can sign up at thewrit.ca. All right, so hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hope you have a, a good weekend and thanks for listening.